More than 15,000 people in Gaza have been murdered by the Israeli military in recent weeks. That number will certainly go up. Fighting is intensifying in both North and South Gaza. Some Palestinian political prisoners have been released, but there are thousands more languishing in Israeli prisons. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. Today, we're talking with Tala Nasir. Tala is a staff lawyer and spokesperson for the Adamir Prisoner Support and Human Rights Association. Tala is speaking with us today from the occupied West Bank. Tala Nasir, welcome to The Socialist Program. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you so much for joining. Tala, you are a lawyer, Adamir Prisoner Support and Human Rights Association is advocating for, speaking up for, and representing Palestinian prisoners. You know, in the American media, we heard so much about the Israeli hostages who were taken on October 7th, and almost nothing about Palestinian political prisoners. It's as if they did not exist. Like, so the American people getting spoon-fed from the American mainstream media didn't even know, I don't think, in the main, about Palestinian prisoners. Some have been released. Thousands more are in Israeli prisons. Let's first talk about how many people are in prison. Why are they in prison? Does the Israeli government have the right to imprison Palestinian people? And how many have been released? Yes. So let me start with the released prisoners. Actually, in the past seven days, when the truce began, actually, 240 Palestinian women and children detainees were released from the Israeli occupation prisons. Among those released are 71 women. 10 of them were held under administrative detention. In addition to 169 child from the occupied West Bank and Jerusalem, including 14 who were held under administrative detention. And within the released prisoners, we're talking about the highest sentence is for the released prisoner, Shrouq Dwayat. She was sentenced to 16 years. Among those released were also several injured prisoners, including Israel Jabiz. She suffers from severe burns all over her body. We're also talking about Fatima Shaheen. She lost the ability to walk after being shot by the occupation forces. She is now paralyzed and she was released. Regarding children, one of the released children is the injured Wissam Tamimi. Wissam had been shot in his head a few days before his arrest and also was released. Uh, he was interrogated actually inside uh, interrogation centers and the, uh, he was assaulted but then he was released within this prisoner's exchange deal. We were also expecting the release of the child, Muhammad Abu Qtish, who is serving the highest sentence among children. He's serving 15-year sentence, which is the highest among the children. So this is a brief of the Palestinians who were released within the beginning of the truce. Let me also shed light on one important thing. During the release of these prisoners, the Israeli forces deliberately assaulted the prisoners and their families during the prison release operations. So they delayed the release of prisoners until late at night 
they released the child prisoners wearing clothes that are too big for their size. Some of them were barefoot. Some of the child released prisoners were barefoot, actually. Uh, the clothes did not provide adequate protection from the cold weather. The forces also used sound bombs, gas bombs, rubber bullets, live ammunition in front of Ofer prison, where the families were gathered, waiting for their loved ones to be released. On the other hand, regarding released prisoners from Jerusalem, Israeli forces raided the house of the prisoners before their release. They prevented them from any signs of celebration upon reuniting with their sons and daughters. The families also were summoned to Al-Maskubiya Interrogation Center, where they were subjected to harsh conditions and arbitrary conditions that prohibited gatherings. They banned marches and fireworks. They prevented chanting slogans. They actually banned the dissemination of the sweets inside the houses. The Israeli forces also assaulted journalists who were present at the houses. They physically assaulted them and they expelled them and prohibited them from media coverage. That is regarding the release of the 240 Palestinian prisoners. Talking about now and these massive arrest campaigns taking place since the beginning of this military operation launched by the occupation after the 7th of October, we're talking about arresting more than 3,640 detainees, including more than 150 women detainees, 41 journalists, 14 members of the Legislative Council, in addition to more than 200 child and more than 100 university students. And in this case, we're also talking about arresting more than 300 Palestinians from the beginning of the truce. And this is actually more than the number of the released prisoners within the exchange deal. Okay, so currently there is over 7,800 Palestinian political prisoners inside Israeli prisons, including more than 3,000 administrative detainees who are detained without a charge, without a trial. After the release of all the children, not all of them actually, but the 169 child, now in prisons there is 166 child inside Israeli prisons. There is 33 women prisoners, including 10 women prisoners who were arrested from inside Gaza. And of course, this is what we learned from the released prisoners, uh, because we have no idea about all the arrest campaigns taking place from inside Gaza. There is also 260 Palestinians from Gaza who are held under the unlawful combatant law, which is similar to the administrative detention. It's without a charge, without a trial. Uh, we still don't have accurate information about the Gazans who were arrested from inside Gaza. We don't know the numbers. We don't know their situation. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. I want to ask you about the legal right of the Israeli occupying forces in the West Bank, where you are in Ramallah, what is their legal right to incarcerate Palestinian people? Let's just put it another way for, again, for the American audience in particular. If the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank or the government in Gaza, the Hamas-led government, if they take Israeli citizens prisoner, it's treated as hostage taking right? That would only be called hostage taking. So if the Palestinians don't have the right to arrest Israeli citizens and it would be treated as an act of extreme violation of international law, on what legal premise, I'm not talking about moral premise, ethical premise, what legal premise does the Israeli government have 
the right to take Palestinian people and put them in Israeli prisons. Okay, so within the occupation, the occupation authorities, they can issue military orders which apply on Palestinians from the West Bank. So they actually incarcerate Palestinians within these military orders. They also try Palestinians from the West Bank before the military courts. So it's all within this military system of issuing military orders, of trying Palestinians before the military courts and all that. So this is the main point of, let's say, how they put all these massive arrest campaigns into the law, actually, within these military courts. So that's what they use to incarcerate Palestinians. They also use the administrative detention. It's, of course, they have the right to arrest Palestinians under administrative detention within these military orders. So, and it's an easy tool to detain the largest possible number of Palestinians behind the bars without presenting any charges against them. So they use all these military orders to impose more repression and control over Palestinian people and uh, incarcerate them for years behind the bars. The United Nations Security Resolution 2334 was adopted in December 2016. So that's Resolution 2334. It concerns Israeli settlements in, quote, Palestinian territories, where you are, you know, particularly the West Bank, occupied since 1967, including East Jerusalem. The resolution passed in a 14 to 0 vote by members of the United Nations Security Council. At that time, the Obama administration abstained at the Security Council, allowing that resolution to pass. The resolution states that Israel's settlement activity constitutes a, quote, flagrant violation, close quote, of international law and, quote, has no legal validity. So that's a U.N. resolution passed unanimously by the Security Council on which the United States government sits. I'm not talking about all the other General Assembly resolutions like Resolution 242 and others that declared the Israeli occupation to be illegal. But under this resolution, no matter what the Israeli government uses, what tool it uses, including military courts and military tribunals, how is that in any way conforming to international law? Oh, actually, at this time, speaking about international law and all that, I think it doesn't apply here because there are a lot of things that have been taking place inside all these let's say, the UN and the Security Council and all that, nothing is actually, no one actually is holding Israel accountable for its crimes. Talking about settlers, you know that in the West Bank, there is a dual system, legal system. So Palestinians are being tried before military courts, while settlers in the West Bank are being tried before the Israeli civil courts. So no one, uh, not a settler, have been held under administrative detention for like a long time. So comparing with the Palestinians who are being held without a charge based on a secret file due to security reasons, as they say, we don't see that in the case of the settlers. So all of these, let's say, opinions, they do nothing, actually, because no one can, until this day, hold Israel accountable for its crimes, and it's still committing all these crimes. Unfortunately, in light of all the comprehensive aggression against Palestinians, the international support is only represented in condemning the massacres committed in Gaza, and it's actually, it actually doesn't rise to the level of the crimes committed. 
either in Gaza or in the West Bank and in the prisons for the Palestinian prisoners. So that's what we have. We are actually disappointed from all the uh, international community, especially the, let's say, official community, just like the Security Council, the UN and its bodies. Let's talk about what's going on where you are now in the West Bank since October 7th. I was reading from Adamir's press releases. I want to read a sentence or two to you so that our audience hears it. And then I want to get your comments. In the West Bank, including Jerusalem, 245 Palestinians have been killed and over 3,300 injured by Israeli occupying forces and settlers since October 7th, and the deaths of six detainees were announced by the Israeli occupying authorities. Again, this is getting almost no coverage in the U.S. mainstream media, but 245 Palestinians have been murdered by Israeli defense forces or by settlers since October 7th, and 3,300 new prisoners from the West Bank. Yes, it's actually more. It's actually more than 250 Palestinians were killed inside the West Bank. In addition to these massive arrest campaigns, like these numbers are actually unprecedented. Every time there is an aggression against Palestinians in Gaza, we have all these massive arrest campaigns taking place in the West Bank. In addition also to the raids to the cities, to the refugee camps, the killing of Palestinians, all these violations taking place. And at this time, let me shed light on one important thing. It's the situation inside the prisons which led to the death of these six Palestinian prisoners. So I think it's important to know that at this time we have documented many extensive violations taking place inside Israeli prisons, uh, including all the violent raids by the Israeli special forces. They fire tear gas and they brutally beat prisoners. There is a ban from family visits, restrictions on lawyer visits. The ICRC till now can't visit any Israeli prison. Prisoners are also denied the medical care. There is a cutting of electricity in several prisons. They transfer number of prisoners to isolation. And all the released prisoners, after we heard their testimonies, they confirm all these punitive measures enacted by the Israeli occupation. So within less than a month, six Palestinian prisoners were killed inside the Israeli prisons. Four of them were arrested after the 7th of October. And until now, we don't know the circumstances of their death. But the testimonies of released prisoners affirm that they were brutally beaten and denied medical care. And that led to their death. Actually, until now, as Adamir, we have documented 70 testimonies from the field, from the released prisoners, and 30 testimonies from prisoners inside prisons. And they all confirm the same extensive violations that the IPS is imposing against Palestinian prisoners. And of course, we are afraid that more Palestinian prisoners will die or will be murdered inside the prisons with all these violations taking place. It was considered to be a major event for the Israelis to release some of the prisoners earlier, the prisoners you spoke about at the beginning of this interview. But then at the same time, the denial of their family's right to celebrate, to welcome them home, and in fact, subjugating those same families to extreme pressure, coercion, intimidation, violence. I mean, again, you know, in the United States, in the media here, we saw these kind of tearful reunions of Israeli citizens who were had been taken hostage on October 7th. 
tearful, wonderful, celebrative, familial, welcome home kind of scenes. But in the case of the Palestinians, actually treated with extreme violence and coercion and intimidation, what's the point? What is the Israeli government trying to accomplish by pursuing that policy? Yes, actually, they are trying to prevent families from meeting with their loved ones, from being happy, actually. It's all punitive measures taking place from the Israeli government against the released prisoners. So just like you said, all the tear gas bombs, the live ammunition, the, the families uh, were gathered and they were, they were injured because of all these bombings and rubber bullets that were used against them. So this is the image, actually. On the other hand, just like you said, we could see. And one another thing is that all the pictures of released child prisoners show that Palestinian children who were released were brutally beaten. One of them has his hands actually broken before he was released and he was denied medical care. So we've seen so much images and videos of all the released prisoners. They were actually in a harsh and difficult conditions before their release. And that's what they are trying to do. Like the Israeli government tries to, no one has to be happy. No Palestinian family has to be happy, reunited with their children or their loved ones, unlike the Israelis. The boy who had his hand broken, I mean, maybe younger people here in the United States might not know, but this policy of breaking bones was actually a policy of the Israeli military during the Intifada, just like going around and routinely breaking people's arms and hands and legs deliberately, like on a mass scale. I mean, just talk about that a little bit if you can. Again, people don't know this history and people here at least. Yes, actually, just like you said, they have used this crime, let's say, against Palestinians in the Intifada. They used to break people's hands and legs using something like a metal or so. So they used to do this. They are actually doing this right now. So this shows that on the past 75 years, we've been under this military occupation that's been violating all our rights, that is committing all these crimes against Palestinians. It's not only after the 7th of October. Like there are always Palestinian prisoners inside Israeli prisons. They are always imposed to violations and punitive measures. But of course, it increased after the 7th of October. So from all the intifadas until now, Palestinians are facing violations in attempts to silence them at the first place and also to, of course, violate the right. They violate the right to expression, to political participation, and all that is to impose this control and further repression against Palestinians. I know you were slightly dismissive of UN resolutions because they, they pass their words on a page and nothing actually happens. But I do think it's important, at least in some of the discussions here in the United States, to show how while Israel is not held to account, it is being consistently identified as a violator of human rights of international law. Because again, the narrative in the US media is that Israel is a democracy, it's a standout democracy, it's like us, it's like the West. You know, it's kind of an extension of what people are told about democracy. And that when you look at Israel's actual practice, what the Israeli government is doing consistently, and 
with the full support of the United States, no matter what, how the U.S. votes at the U.N. When you see it, it's a clear violation of international law and basic human rights. This December 9th, this December 9th, meaning at the end of this week, is the anniversary of the passage by the United Nations of the Genocide Convention. Now, Adamir, your organization, a legal organization representing or a non-governmental organization representing or advocating for Palestinian prisoners, makes the argument as a legal entity that what the Israelis are doing in Gaza is genocide. The Israelis say, no, we're defending ourselves, and you're saying it's genocide. So here we are on the anniversary of the passage of the Genocide Convention. Very important post-World War II piece of international law, human rights law, and premised on the UN Charter itself. Why, from your point of view, from the point of view of Adamir, is the assault in Gaza conforming to the definitions of genocide as adopted in 1948? Yes, I will speak in two different ways. The first one is, yes, we call this genocide. Our problem actually is not with the conventions. We have a lot of conventions. They are all good. They are all legal and so on. The problem is in the practice. So there is a convention against genocide, but is someone being held accountable on these crimes of genocide taking place? No, the answer is no. So here it's not like, okay, so it's the anniversary of this convention and okay, it's a good convention and it's an international convention and it has its place in the world, but practically nothing happens. Till now, we can't hold Israel accountable for all its crimes. We're talking about more than 8,000 child killed in Gaza. How is this not genocide? That's on one side, and I can talk a lot about it. But one important thing, you mentioned the democracy, so that Israel is a democratic country and so on. You know, Israeli authorities prevented, released Israelis from Gaza to go out to the media and to reach to the media to talk about their situation inside the custody of Hamas. Why do you think this democratic country prevented and banned all released Israelis to talk to the media because they are afraid they will tell about the good conditions they were facing inside Hamas's custody. So is this democracy? I don't think so. Like, how is this democracy? Palestinian prisoners, released Palestinian prisoners get out of prison with their hands broken, with their tears all over, while Israelis who were released are actually happy. They are telling that they were in a very good condition talking about the whole situation in Gaza and all the killing and all this genocide taking place. So, no, this is not democracy. If you ban and prevent Israelis from talking to the media and telling that, no, just like you said, Hamas is not ICIS. No, Hamas treated the Israeli prisoners well, but this is not shown in the media because they are prevented to show this. So this is one important thing to to shed light on actually talking about democracy. So I don't think that it is really is. Back to the genocide thing, yes, we call this genocide. And we are really disappointed for having all these conventions without them being applied to the case of Palestine. So we are hopeful things will change. Well, one thing that's changing here in the United States, at least, Tala, is public opinion. 
And the Biden administration, which openly embraced, they were hugging and kissing and crying with Benjamin Netanyahu. That position is being rejected by millions of Americans. I mean, this is a sea change in terms of public opinion. I've been working in the anti-war movement as part of the Answer Coalition. We've been organizing in solidarity with Palestine for many decades. And I can tell you things have shifted in the biggest, most dramatic way. U.S. politicians can't go home right now without being confronted by demonstrators from their area. So these are not just big organizations that have clout. These are like self-acting people in the local area going and confronting local members of Congress. There are people are disrupting banks that have investments in Israel. Every day, this movement is growing. Where I am in Midtown Manhattan, all around, there are printed color posters of martyrs from Gaza who have been murdered in the past eight weeks. This is a big change. And even though the government acts like public opinion doesn't matter, in fact, it does matter. It doesn't matter all at once. The picture we're showing here is of a demonstration we organized in Washington that was a half a million people on November 4th. That would have been unthinkable earlier. So we have this growing support for the Palestinian people because people, even those who don't know the history that much, are only starting to learn, forming study groups, learning about the Balfour Declaration, learning about Nakba, learning, and I'm not just talking about young Arab Americans, I'm talking about people who are not Arab American. A lot of people are learning, but even if you haven't learned any history, you just turn on the TV and see the barbarism of what's going on in Gaza, and a normal human being is mortified. They're disgusted. And the fact that the U.S. government is supporting the people carrying out this genocide, you know, sort of sponsoring it, makes people angry at that government, including young people who voted for the Democrats against Trump. They're now saying, we're not going to support Genocide Joe. I mean, that's the real mood here. I want to talk to you about what's the mood in the West Bank, because that's another thing. We don't really hear the voices of people in the West Bank. We're having this huge change in the United States and in other countries. What's it like where you are? You know, what you're saying is actually important. Right now, we actually rely on the people of the world uh, because we are very disappointed of all the officials and all the, the UN system, actually. We are now relying on the solidarity movements, on the solidarity groups, on the support of the people of the world. So this is really important in all the world, not only in America. And that's really like, we are grateful this is happening actually. In the West Bank, yes, there are marches, people are going out, but you know, people are also afraid, afraid of getting arrested. Everyone who writes on his social media platform is being arrested. Even if, if the person gives like sympathy to the children of Gaza or anything. So people actually in the West Bank are afraid of getting arrested because of all these massive arrest campaigns and all these, like they are everywhere. Like the Israeli soldiers are everywhere. They are threatening Palestinians in the West Bank. If you talk, if you speak, if you publish anything on the social media, if you talk to the media, you are threatened to get arrested. So it's actually... There is this vibe of people are just waiting and not knowing what is going to happen. They are afraid of getting arrested. You know, many Palestinians were held as hostages in order for their father or mother or brother to surrender himself to the Israeli army. So not only the person who is 
actually resisting the occupation or has a political view who is being arrested, but also his family. So everyone actually is afraid of this, the threatening all over the place. So this is actually the thing in the West Bank right now. People are trying, people are want to do anything for our people in Gaza. But all of this control over Palestinians and like easily giving administrative detention orders against everyone, girls, children, university students and all that. So they're using this tool against everyone. So it's now like these are unprecedented numbers taking place after the 7th of October who are being held under administrative detention. So yes, people are actually have doubts like what is going to happen. It's very important what you're saying. And, you know, here in the U.S., Tala, I don't know, maybe 1,500, perhaps 2,000 people have been arrested in protests in the last couple of weeks. But if you're arrested right now in the United States, you assume that within the next day or two days, you're going to be in court. You're going to be arraigned. You can plead not guilty to your charges. You're going to get a lawyer. Your family can see you. Some of the bail money has been very, very high, sometimes tens of thousands of dollars, but people can find a way to post it. So there's an assumption that if you're protesting, you don't want to get arrested, but you are arrested, you have due process still in the United States. I want to emphasize this to people watching the show who are in the United States or in Western countries, because what you're describing is not just like a reduction in due process, but the complete negation the negation of due process. Let's just talk about what that means a little bit more in detail for you as a lawyer. So somebody gets arrested tomorrow because they have a social media post that says, I'm in solidarity with my family in Gaza or whatever. They can say whatever. And they get arrested. What happens to them? What's the next step? Yes. So it's important to note, just like I said, that Palestinians are tried before military courts. These military courts actually lack the guarantees of a fair trial with violations to the due process. These violations include, but not limited to, denying Palestinians the right to know the nature and the cause of the charges. And that's in the cases of administrative detention. They are denied the right to an independent and impartial tribunal. The judges are military, the prosecution is military and all that. They are soldiers in the Israeli army. Uh, You don't have the right to public trial and proceedings. So only two members of your family can attend your court session, but not in the cases of administrative detention. So administrative detention, judicial reviews happen without anyone being present at the court. You don't have the right to assistance of an interpreter because usually the translator or the interpreter is on his phone playing games, actually. So you don't understand everything because the the session is in Hebrew, which is a language that very minor Palestinians know this language. You don't always have the right to counsel and effective assistance of counsel. They can ban you from meeting your lawyer for up to 60 days. So... Of course, that means that your lawyer can document and monitor what is happening with you inside the interrogation center if you're under torture, ill-treatment. All the bruises actually go away after 60 days of banning you to meet with your lawyer. One other thing is that the vast majority of Palestinians sign confessions, which are often in Hebrew. Of course, it's just like I said, it's a language they don't understand. 
And when the confession is actually signed, it's practically impossible to exclude it as an evidence, even if it's alleged to have been extracted under duress, including torture and ill-treatment and so on. So this actually leads to the defendants agreeing to a plea bargain for offenses they did not commit. And in doing so, Palestinian detainees pled guilty and waived the right to continue with the judicial procedures, including hearing witnesses and examining evidence. So many factors lead Palestinian detainees to seek a plea bargain, actually. They include the lack of faith, of course, and trust in these Israeli military courts and the ability for these military courts to provide a fair trial and a just sentence, actually. And this is also to avoid the unfair, prolonged military court's judicial procedure in circumstances where the time to the end of trial might be longer than the sentence of detention to a plea bargain. Also to avoid repeated and the distressing journeys back and forth from prison in Israel to the court sessions in the West Bank. So as you know, or not all of you know, that Palestinian prisoners are transferred into Israel, which is a crime. They are not being held in prisons inside the occupied territories. And one important thing to note is that more than 99% of the cases files before the Israeli military courts end in plea bargain between the Israeli military prosecutor and the detainees. And that's because what I've mentioned uh, before. So this military system actually has not the minimum requirements of a fair trial, actually. So this leads to all the confessions taking place under torture and ill-treatment and all the sentences. Like I've been asked a lot, what are the, the sentences or what are they convicted for, the released children and what were their charges, the released children and women? So they're always, uh, okay, they tried to stab a settler, they throw stones or Molotov cocktails. Yes, but it's important to note that the sentences imposed on Palestinian prisoners are through these military courts and confessions are usually and most of the times extracted from detainees under torture and ill-treatment, meaning these confessions should be actually invalidated. However, this doesn't happen. Another important thing to know is the rate of conviction in these military courts exceeds 99%. So all of this shows that these military courts and the charges against all Palestinian prisoners are actually, it's really a hard situation we are facing in the occupied West Bank. Tala, I listened to an interview that you gave with the Canadian Broadcasting Company, you know, in the recent weeks, maybe in the recent days. It's a program called As It Happens. And the announcer had at first kind of a, I mean, the host had kind of a neutral voice. But then as you continued with the interview, he was, he was asking you questions that sort of go along the same sort of path that you just described. He said this, he said, a lot of these are teenagers charged with offenses like stone throwing, but some of them are charged with more serious crimes, placing explosives, several attempted murder charges, does that concern you, seeing people charged with much more serious crimes released as part of this exchange? And you can say again what you said then, but one of the things that just jumped out at me is if you have a situation where people don't have due process, they're tried before military tribunals, the conviction rate is 99%, people are basically plea bargaining because they're basically told, do you want to serve 15 years in prison or do you want to serve seven because if you want to serve 15, go to trial and we're going to convict you because it's our, <laughs> it's a military tribunal. 
but you can plead guilty to seven and then, you know, the process is over and you've pled guilty. So here's this announcer, this host in Western media saying, look, these people are charged with some serious crimes, even if it's a handful of them, not emphasizing the reality that these are not courts. Exactly. This is not a judicial system. This is not a legally recognized court system. It certainly would be rejected in the United States. I mean, in the United States, people also plea bargain. There's like 92% conviction rate here because poor people can't get a lawyer. They have charges stack. So there's an element that's very similar to the United States in one sense. But the complete absence of due process and the fact that it's administrative detention under the jurisdiction of military tribunals or military courts completely negates the idea that it's an actual court. So the question that the announcer, the host should have been asking you is, how could the U.S. and Canadian government support a system that is the negation of a democratic judicial system and makes a mockery out of what a judicial system is supposed to be? It's just... Again, it's all by power of innuendo and suggestion, but obviously they're missing the point. Yes, you're right, actually. Just like I mentioned, all these violations within this military system and these military courts, yes, you can't ask me about serious crimes because you can't call the crime serious or not. You have to talk about all the military court system and all the all these uh, violations to the due process and to the fair trial guarantees and all that. So... Yes, this is what's important to shed light on before asking or talking about all these charges which are brought against Palestinians under, just like I said, torture and ill-treatment and them signing papers in Hebrew, which is a language they don't understand. So they are coerced to confess all these confessions and then try it before these military courts. So within all this system, we can't just ask about charges and sentences. We have to look up for all the, the system and its violations to Palestinians. I want to go back again to another resolution in the UN, not because we think the UN is a serious body when it comes to implementation. But in 1970, I want our audience to hear this. In 1970, the United Nations General Assembly passed resolution 2625, that explicitly endorsed a right to resist, quote, subjugation, subjection of peoples to alien subjugation, domination, and exploitation. Meaning the right to resist is, according to the UN and according to thus to international law, the right to resist exists for people who live under conditions of illegal occupation. I think that's very important because what the U.S. media and the U.S. government has done is brand Palestinian resistance as nothing other than terrorism, as if the Palestinians just like to be violent or something like that. When in fact, international law says if you live under illegal occupation, you have a legal right to resist. And that same body, the United Nations, has declared the seizure of the West Bank, Gaza, Golan Heights, and the other territories seized in 1967 as a violation of international law as an illegal occupation. So here too, I want you to comment on this. I know you're essentially representing those people who have been unjustly detained, imprisoned, violations of their due process rights. But since this issue of resistance has become sort of 
conflated with something other than a particular international right for people living under occupation. As a lawyer, I'd like you to just, I want to get your comments on that. Yes. You know, many people ask me, what do you mean by political prisoners? I say political prisoners are Palestinians who resisted the Israeli occupation and they were then imprisoned. Not all of these apply because of the administrative detention. It has no charges and all that. But one important thing is that, yes, not me saying that it is legal to resist the occupation. It's the international law. It's the UN bodies and all that. So, yes, the right to self-determination is also one important collective right for Palestinians. The right to, to resist the occupation and all that. Yes, it's being called terrorism in the West, but... It's not like that here. And what shows this, just like I said, how the Israeli prisoners who were released were talking about the resistant group that were holding these Israeli prisoners. So this shows that, yes, they are resisting groups trying to resist this occupation in order to end this occupation and, of course, hold Israel accountable. Now we're talking about demanding the release of all Palestinian prisoners, of course, at first stop the genocide and ceasefire in Gaza, demanding also the release of all Palestinian political prisoners, and of course, holding Israel accountable for its ongoing crimes. And that's one very important thing. We don't know who is going to hold Israel accountable, but countries have to do something with this. It's not only the UN bodies or the UN system. Countries actually have to do more about not only condemning these crimes, but also taking measures against these crimes. As we move towards the end of our show, Tala, I want to ask you what it's like for you as a lawyer representing Palestinian prisoners, and not just you, but your colleagues, your associates. Normally, being a lawyer would be, certainly in the United States, a kind of privileged position. Certainly, you live very comfortably, make lots of money for most lawyers, not all, but most. But it seems to me like under the situation where international law is completely negated, violated, and everyone's due process rights are violated, it must be hard even for the legal community, Palestinian legal community, given the levels of intimidation. Just talk about how that works, how it impacts your work and why you do it. What's your commitment and what's it based on? Yes, you know, we actually, as Palestinian lawyers working with Palestinian prisoners, we, we are actually helpless, especially right now, because, you know, you don't have a big role actually in the military courts. So unlike you said, for the American lawyers, they are happy, they make money and so on. In our case, no, it's, it's really bad because we see ourselves, we have no role, we can't do anything. We only see Palestinians cuffed and being tried before all these military courts. That's on one side. On the other side, of course, we're committed to our, let's say, message to support Palestinian prisoners. And we've been working, Adamir has been established since more than 30 years. So we've been working on all these issues, especially with Palestinian political prisoners, defending their rights, giving legal aid for Palestinian prisoners and doing all the documentation and monitoring to document all the torture and ill treatment taking place inside Israeli prisons. All that, it's actually disappointing because we've been sending so much communication, so much submissions to all the UN bodies, 
over the past 30 years, but nothing happens. So we are actually disappointed right now. We are very disappointed because all of the work we've done in the past 30 years, all the submissions, all the trying to hold Israel accountable, sending individual complaints, sending reports, thematic reports, and all that. Nothing happened. No one could do anything to the Palestinians within these years. So it's actually disappointing. That doesn't mean we're stopping. We're not stopping. And let me tell you something. Before two years, the Israeli authorities designated my organization with other six organizations as a terrorist organization. So we are now designated as a terrorist organization, which means we can get into prison for more than five years. They closed our office. They confiscated our laptops and so on. So we are still working. We will still work. But of course, just like I said, now we will work with people of the world because those who we rely on, the people who are supporting the solidarity movements, who are supporting Palestinians and raising the Palestinian voice, not the system that we've been working with for more than 30 years and nothing happened. Talan Nasir, I know you're busy night and day, and we're talking to you daytime New York City time. It's nighttime where you are in the West Bank. I want to really thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us and to help the audience, which is a global audience, but especially people in the United States have a better sense of what the so-called judicial system looks like in the West Bank and the plight of the Palestinian prisoners. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. 